Dana Susskind is a professor of surgery and pediatrics at the University of Chicago Medical Center and director of the university's cochlear implant program. She is the author of the best-selling 30 Million Words and Parent Nation and is a big thinker about the world's littlest people. Dana, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. Now, you were born in 1968 in Baltimore, in the, in the midst of, uh, of the Baltimore riots. Tell me a bit about your parents and the context in, in which you entered the world. Well, first of all, you've just outed my age, but I will forgive you for that because you're bringing up the most influential people in my life, my parents. Um, I always say that they are probably the reason that a surgeon is doing the kind of work that she is doing. Mm. Um, my mom is my mom and my parents are uh, luckily still alive. One is 83. My mom is 83 and my dad is 87. My mom is a social worker um, and my dad is a pediatrician. And, you know, back in 1968, um, they were living in Baltimore. My dad was doing his residency at Hopkins in pediatrics. And my mom was a social worker working in the uh, war on poverty, which was a Lyndon Johnson um, uh uh, program to help, you know, decrease the the huge amounts of poverty in our country. And she was working um, in Baltimore, actually, as a community um, uh, organizer. And, um, and really, I was, believe it or not, born three days after the assassination of Martin Luther King. So you're so so my parents um, were working in Baltimore, where I was born in 1968. And um, their work has always been about trying to make the world a better place, give every individual a chance to lead happy, healthy, successful lives. And uh, that that sort of ethos, um, dedication towards, you know, making the world better, uh, transmitted to me, uh, which is why I do the work that I do. So. And what's striking to me about uh, about your work, Dana, is you've sort of started off on the career of your dad as a pediatrician and then come back uh, li later in your career towards the work of your mum on uh, on policy change. What got you interested first in, in child development? Uh, it's not a, a natural career path for uh, kids at school to say they want to grow up to be pediatricians. When did uh, you get you get excited by that? Was it medicine you went into and then from medicine went into pediatrics? Yeah, no, that's a great. So I want to clarify, I'm actually a pediatric surgeon. So my my dad is a pediatrician and um, I take care of little ones, but I also use a scalpel. And the funny thing is, is that I didn't actually go into me um, uh, medical school thinking that I would be a pediatric physician. Actually, in my early days uh, as a medical student, I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon because I love the brain. And I thought, okay, the, the way you get close to the brain is operating on it. Um, but pretty quickly, it was clear that when you were a neurosurgeon, your, your patients didn't interact as much uh, with you. Um, and so through sort of a series of events, realized that um, taking care of little kids through the work as a pediatric ENT and ear, nose, and throat doctor, specifically a cochlear implant surgeon, would allow me to get close to the brain, influence the brain, because hearing is not actually about the ears, it's about the brain. And so ended up being a pediatric cochlear implant surgeon. So 
actually my dad, who's a pediatrician, when I told him I was going to be a surgeon, was actually a little bit upset. He he actually, <laughs> this is a funny thing. He actually said, how can you be a surgeon? I was terrible in anatomy when I was in med school. I was like, dad, <laughs> I'm good at anatomy. Just because you weren't doesn't mean I am. So I ended up, being, <laughs> so I brought in the pediatrics and I made him a little bit happier because I'm a pediatric surgeon. But so, but as you mentioned, I, you know, my career started out very surgical. I was a pediatric uh, ENT, cochlear implant surgeon, giving children uh, who are born deaf the ability to hear through implanting them with a cochlear implant. Um, but pretty early in my career, starting the implant program, it, it became clear that you know, the implant allowed children the access to sound, but much more was needed to make that sound have meaning, that children needed rich language environments, and when they didn't have it, it impacted their development, so. But one of the striking things about the cochlear implant, and, and we Australians are uh, somewhat proud of it as not as, not as the yeah. Aussie invention, uh, yeah. is it's... It's extraordinarily instantaneous impact. So most of the things we do with kids, whether that's as parents or whether the work of educators, takes sort of months or years to manifest. But a cochlear implant, you, you see these amazing videos, right? The kid wakes up and suddenly they can hear and their entire world has changed. I've got to think that maybe the process of installing cochlear implants gives you almost an outsized sense of confidence about our ability to shape the trajectory of children in other ways? Yeah, no, that but it's a really important point. You know, the cochlear implant is miraculous. And yes, congratulations, Australia, uh, on being the innovators uh, of that. But it also shows you know, the impact uh, of child development. So yes, I can put an implant in a child and almost instantaneously when you turn it on um, and you, everybody, hopefully many of your audience has seen, have seen babies hearing for the first time. It is just so you know, it's even better in person. I won't make you jealous, um, <laughs> but, but, you can, but you can see them hear for the first time, but hearing is not the same thing as understanding and and developing listening skills. So you can allow, turn on an implant and they hear almost immediately, but making sense, understanding what those words means, that's the developmental trajectory that requires, you know, being exposed to rich language environments, um, hearing a lively stream of words every day so that children can go from hearing to understanding. And that's that gap is really what brought me into the social sciences and child development and policy change because I could I started implanting all these children and seeing them here for the first time, as you say, but then seeing noticeably different notice different outcomes uh, in the long term. So some would be learning and talking on par with their hearing peers and other same time out would barely be able to communicate. And it was really mm. seeing that difference that pushed me into figuring out why, why was this and what could I do about it? So your first book is titled 30 Million Words. Uh, that, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the origins of that, uh, that number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, it, so before I jump into that, just to connect it to my own trajectory, you know, as mm. mentioned, I was seeing these developmental differences, not developmental, but outcome differences in my patients with some 
successfully using the implant and others not being, you know, barely being able to communicate. And in trying to understand why this was, and more importantly, what I could do about it, I started auditing child development classes, actually at the University of Chicago. And, and one of the first research studies that I heard about in these classes was done by Hart and Risley, you know, you know, decades ago. And their their study basically showed that, you know, that how much children are exposed to in terms of language is critical for their education, vocabulary, you know, IQ sort of trajectories. And basically what they found was that by the end of the age of three, children uh, often born into poverty will have heard what they say, 30 million fewer words than their more affluent peers. And for me, this was like, and let me caveat that, since that time, we've learned that it is a far from perfect study. It has many issues and we can go into that. But for me, a surgeon, I was like, oh, so this makes sense. I implant these children and if they don't aren't exposed to a lot of language, they're not able to develop understanding and vocabulary development because hearing and listening are two different things in language development. And so this 30 million word study, I, I consider it just a first sentence in a robust literature that shows that early, rich early language environments, rich nurturing environments are critical for brain development and language development and human development. So whether Betty Hart and Todd Risley were precisely right about 30 million words, I think we can be pretty confident that the difference in number of words heard by kids in high poverty and low poverty environments is, is very different. And uh, uh, as the military strategists like to say, quantity has a quality all of its own. Uh, but you talk too about the quality of engagement and you have this lovely notion of the three T's, tune in, talk more, take turns. Tell us about the three T's and about how that emerged from uh, your work on the, the quantity and the quality of engagement. Sure, no, absolutely. It, and to your point, and just to expand it, I mean, I think that quality, you know, without quantity, I mean, you know, small amounts of quality are, you know, you need both quantity and quality, but let's face it, quality is really an important driver. And just to sort of mention the additional research that's come out is that not only is it, you know, quality, you know, the tone of the voice, the conversational aspect of it is incredibly powerful. Um, and we can talk about that research, but, you know, in trying to take that basic science or the science of human development and put it into actionable sort of strategies, which is, you know, I'm, I would call myself a surgical social scientist. Uh, our team developed what we call the three T's because what do you tell, you know, how do you share with parents? Like, how do you talk and interact more? And what we developed was this toolkit that we call the three T's, tune in, talk more, take turns. You know, what is tuning in? Tuning in is really following your child's lead, um, seeing what they're interested in, getting on their level, joint attention. Um, talk more is, you know, using rich language, uh, talking about the past, the future, the present, what we call deep decontextualized language. And lastly, take turns. And I think this is the most powerful T. It's really viewing the child as a conversational partner. So really the back and forth that is so powerful. And these three T's are sort of the toolkit that 
undergird all of the programs, the, the evidence-based programs that we've developed and tested, those three Ts are the core of it. Um, because what is clear from the science of human development is nurturing interaction and protection from toxic stress are the key for optimal provide allowing optimal human development. And one of the things that uh, I remember you mentioning to me in one of our conversations was that uh, the sing-song voice, kind of so-called baby talk, is actually clinically more effective. Uh, I, uh, I I found myself as a as a parent wanting to to talk to my kids <laughs> like they were adults, but uh, uh, you say pretty persuasively that that is uh, that that's that's not not the uh, not the best way of engaging. Yeah, well, I mean, when they're very young, I mean, if if you're talking to your 15 year old son, son with the same tongue, you might get a little annoyed. I do that with my husband sometimes and our puppies, too. But um, but yeah, when when kids are very young, that sing songy voice, the the tone, the positive tone actually helps children develop the vocabulary. It helps sort of parse the words, you know, into their different sections, because you think about you know, language and talking, it's actually a continuous stream of, you know, sound. And that helps the the brain really start parsing it. And, and what's interesting is we've been looking at, you know, talking about, you know, going back to the research, you know, we've looked at our, you know, our randomized control trials and our, you know, the, the, of our different programs and looking back at, tone and, you know, how positive tone influences, you know, children's, not just their vocabulary development long-term, but when parents use, you know, certain positive tones, it influences their socio-emotional development. Um, and it really influences the entire brain. So it's, you know, again, to your point, it's not just quantity, it's not just quality, it's even tone that is really important for, for human development. And there's a lot of the neurosurgeon that you nearly were in your uh, in your books. Uh, one of the, uh, the the accounts I love is just the the discussion of the sheer degree of neuroplasticity. Uh, tell us about what's happened, what we know about people who are born missing half a brain. Oh, yeah. So yeah, and, and you mentioned that because one of the stories in in uh, my last book, it really to drive home the point that you know, the early years, those first years of life have incredible neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to make new connections and reform itself. And I tell the story of uh, a patient who is actually a, um, a subject of one of my colleagues that was actually born with half a brain. I mean, we're not, it's not even an exaggeration, half a brain. They think um, we can talk about why this was, but, um, but despite that, because she had such, you know, we're presuming such nurturing interaction and early intervention and all that important input stuff, the remaining half a brain did double duty, right? And this, this child, you know, she had some um, hemiparesis, like mo some motor function, but from a cognitive and literacy development, she had, she wasn't just at age level, in some places like reading, she was above age level, not in the very beginning, she had to get the sort of early intervention, but it, it just drives home the point that, you know, 
the brain, you know, we're born with genetic blueprint, right? Of, and all these neurons that are, you know, that are just being wait, just waiting to be connected because they're waiting for an instruction guide from the environment in the first three years of life. And by getting adequate input, you allow all children, even children born without, with half a brain to, to succeed. And I, I drive that point because you know, so often, uh, especially children who are born into difficult environments where, you know, families are in, you know, don't have a roof over their head or enough to eat or parents are under major stress because of lack of resources. And, you know, we see the beginnings of what we call the achievement or opportunity gap, you know, coming in so early. And, and the truth is, is that it's, it's just a tragedy that society allows that to happen, that we don't give families enough support and resources because if a child with half a brain is allowed to succeed, then children born with full brains, right? With parents who love them should be able to, you know, succeed in spades. And it's just, you know, we, I think it's a really important point. I think sometimes people think, oh, well, this is just differences in, you know, populations. But you know what? I don't buy it. It's, you know, we all have different genetic blueprints, right? Some are going to be more talented in some areas and less talented in other areas, but all children can succeed with the right environment and supports for their families. So I noticed a sort of change in the, in something of the tone between your two books, uh, which I've I've seen in other public pol policy scholars uh, like Cal Newport, uh, in moving from uh, advice for individuals and families to discussing more societal level interventions. So 30 Million Words, which you wrote in 2015, has a lot of advice for individuals and families. Parent Nation, which you wrote last year, is, is more thinking about societal intervention. And you start with this uh, great thought experiment about imagine what if, you, if your child was taken away to be raised elsewhere in society. Uh, tell us how that works. Yeah, I think that I'm going to get emotional about this. I, I think it is so easy for us to sort of say, you know, to look away. And we we all know the the thought experiment of, you know, do you want to speak to the thought experiment that this this comes from? Uh, and then I can sort of continue on with that because I think people need to sort of know that for how I got into this experiment. Well, so your your thought experiment builds on the uh, John Rawls experiment, yeah, uh, yeah, which, uh, which yeah, the Rawlsian, yeah. Uh, which 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 env envisages uh, uh, that uh, we've got a, a baby in utero uh, who is about to come out into the world, doesn't know what circumstances they'll be born into. In those circumstances, behind the veil of ignorance, what kind of society, what kind of income distribution uh, would that uh, baby baby want for the world? Uh, so you take that Rawlsian uh, experiment. And then you move it up a notch. Tell yes. us about yours. Yes, and and so so I I did that intentionally because i think that at least in my experience uh, for the last 20 plus years as a physician that there is it is almost primal how much not just parents love their children but will go to no end to protect 
their children, right? So, so in some ways, you know, self is important, but you know, you can sort of discount it. So I wanted to take the Rawlsian and take it to the next level and force individuals to put it, instead of putting themselves into that space, think about their children. And what would they want for their children? Um, because there is no more primal or fierce love than a parent for their child. And sort of reflect on what would be the supports that they would want for the adult or the 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 you know surrogate parent who is caring for their children. And I don't know, you know, uh, I, I don't know how much that pushed people to think about it in a different way, but I was hoping that it would. Um, push people to think about that. So, and you know, you talk about uh, the uh, the issue of parental leave, for example, in the United States, uh, which looks pretty remarkable from an Australian perspective. Um, you report that twenty five percent of U.S. mothers, including a pediatrician, you know, Kimberly Montez, are back at work two weeks after giving birth. Um, what does more parental leave mean for kids? Yeah, yeah, it must be for your listeners in Australia, just a uh, must blow their mind that um, that the United States does not have any uh, federally mandated paid family and medical leave. It's it's pretty incredible. But um, so as mentioned, you know, one in four mothers goes back to has to go back to work within two weeks. And I, I want to juxtapose that to do puppies in our country actually get more protection. I think you have to be eight weeks old before you take a puppy to take it away from their mother, but that's a totally different thing. But, you know, there are huge impacts both on mothers for obvious reasons in terms of their mental health, their, you know, their relationship with their their partner, if there, there is one. Um, but there's even recent research showing the impact on children uh, and children's brain development. And one of my colleagues, Natalie Brito, who's at NYU and her colleagues, uh, demonstrated that, you know, children, it wasn't, you know, uh, randomized, but it was basically she showed that children born to mothers with paid family or uh, parental leave versus those without it uh, had sort of more advanced EEG measures than those mothers who didn't have it. And she, and, you know, it looks like the mechanism is actually through stress. So they, those mothers without it had higher cortisol levels, because you can imagine not, you know, not having paid family leave, paid maternal leave, you know, with a new baby could be very stressful. I mean, it's stressful with or without paid leave, um, but it's really stressful without it. So, uh, you know, it's frankly one of the more surprising things that we haven't pushed forward, pushed that forward in our country. When people ask me in this country, well, what would you recommend? You know, what you know, there's a whole host of supports that families need in this country. But the fact that we don't have the most basic of them, um, sort of mind blowing. So I'm, I, what else? I'll, I'll come to Australia. You have it. Although I, I'm not having any more kids, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else is high on your uh, public policy priority list uh, from, from a child perspective? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, I, the way I think about it, and I just want to provide a framework, because in some ways, when I think about when I wrote Parent Nation, it was, you know, with this idea that, you know, the brain science, you know, 
informs not only what we do individually, which is what I you know, what I wrote about in, in 30 million words, but the brain science can actually inform our policy uh, decisions. And you know, when you and the way I think about it is this: when you think about what children need for healthy brain development, it's sort of three things, right? You, they need time enrichment and protection, protection from toxic stress. Those are sort of the three things. They need time in, uh, you know, time with their parents and caregivers for nurturing interaction. They need enrichment. They need enrichment, you know, in terms of rich nurturing interaction, you know, and food, et cetera. And they need protection. They need protection from toxic stress. And what's interesting is those three buckets are exactly the same thing that parents need uh, and caregivers need. Because the truth is, is that, you know, the well-being of children is 1000% dependent on the support for their parents. So what do parents need when you look at those three buckets? They need time. So they need things like paid family and medical leave. Um, they need enrichment. They need enrichment in terms of educational supports. I mean, we always think loving your children means you know how, you know, children develop. And that's not always. And I think, you know, actually what you all do in Australia is pretty awesome. So we should talk about that. So they need, you know, educational supports on how to best support their children's development. But they need enrichment in terms of, you know, things like child credits or, uh, you know, living wages. Um, and then they need protection. They need protection from the social forces that, you know, happen to all of us. Um, things like, you know, benefits and, you know, social insurance and safety nets. Uh, there's a joke, and I didn't come up with it, although I wish I did. You know, most countries in this world have social safety nets. Our country has women. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Um, that's sort of how it goes. But there, there's another interesting thing that I want to touch. So yeah, so that's how I would think about it from a policy description mm. and high quality childcare. So I'd, I'd love, you know, if you only gave me three things, I would probably go with paid family and medical leave, because how could we not have that, you know, high quality, affordable childcare, and either child credit because we have an incredibly high child poverty rate and we know poverty is bad for children's brains, you know, and or portable benefits. So, you know. Uh, you talk about uh, the happiness gap between uh, parents and non-parents. Uh, yeah. uh, it's well known that uh, the happiness of parents tends to be lower than that of uh, non-parents, but the, the gap is is bigger in the United States than in other places. I wanted to push you a little bit on this. Does this tell us something about policy or about the limitations of happiness surveys? <laughs> uh, given that uh, you know you and I are both data people who have uh, who have kids and don't regret having had kids, um, doesn't uh, don't the happiness uh, surveys tell us that uh, actually happiness surveys don't capture everything that matters about living a good life? Yeah, I mean, so, well, I mean, you know, you're talking about Jennifer Glass and colleagues uh, study and she, so let me just for your listeners uh, to sort of share what she showed at sort of a high level is that she Place. looked at a number of OEC, you know, of OECD countries and basically looked at this happiness gap as mentioned, you know, in general, 
non-parents are happier than parents. I mean, raising kids is hard. We all know that. doesn't mean you don't love your kid. It's hard. Um, but what she found was, you know, the happiness get, then, then she looked at sort of the parental supports in the country, like, you know, high quality childcare, leave, child credits, et cetera. And basically what she found was, um, you know, that, that countries had, that had more, social supports for families had a smaller gap between parents and non-parents. And in our country, in the US, there's a much larger gap. Um, you know, yes, look, it's not a randomized control trial. So you and I as causal people can, you know, although RCTs aren't everything, you know, can we can nitpick a lot of things, but, but you know, I think that it, in general, it sort of makes, sense right if you've got if you're not if you're not as stressed out because you know you you're able to stay home with your child or you have you know social insurance it's going to be a little bit easier now on the other hand you know you could nitpick like in this country it's about the gap so maybe in general parents in the U.S. are just you know happier you know and you know you don't know it's it's not normalized but um but I think it's it's a pretty telling, you know, study. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, rich uh, set of scholars working at the University of Chicago around uh, children's issues. Uh, uh, you've got uh, Nobel laureate James Heckman and the work that he's been doing, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, the uh movement towards getting more investment early on guided in part by uh, uh the results out of some quite old now randomized trials looking at high quality early childhood intervention um i find that literature fascinating um but i'm also uh worried a little bit about some of the fatalism that can cre creep in from the whole first thousand days movement uh yeah. that suggestion that uh, the only period of uh, child development that, that matters is the first thousand days uh suggests that uh, public policy should give up on delinquent teens and and we know that there is actually a bunch of things that work really really well later in life how do you get the balance right in, uh, in your public communication on this, in encouraging uh, more focus on neuroscience, more focus on growing brains, uh, but also not giving up on, uh, on teens? <laughs> no, absolutely. And the truth is, is that there, there are a number of sensitive periods. I mean, you know, I focus on the early years. You know, look, it's always easier when you start earlier, no doubt about it, because and we can talk about, you know, the growing of the, the brain and, you know, how, how it's sort of a foundational thing. But I really emphasize that it is never, ever too late. I mean, and in fact, we just have to look at our own parenting to know that it, it's not either or. I mean, the, the mm. problem, the, the, I don't want to say the problem with humans, but humans in general, we, we want to say, okay, it's this or that, you know, there's not a lot of nuance, but as a parent, we know, I don't know about you, but it's, you know, the parenting is never done. It just, yes. it, it, we have to, but for so long, we've focused only on K-12, nothing on the early years. And so I think there's try to push to say, hey, look, we need to start 
when learning begins, not the first day of school, but the first day of life. And we can all agree that you should start early and that you should do intensive, you know, work around that time period and in a different way. But to say, and, but to say that that's the only time period would be not only false because it's just not true, but also sort of ignores the fact that, look, adolescence is another important sensitive period, especially around executive function development. Um, and so, so yes and yes. Um, at the same time, I think that, you know, Heckman's work, you know, Jim Heckman's work sort of showing the, you know, the returns on investments that you can get when you do it well early on are powerful. Uh, of course, you and I have talked a lot about the issues of scaling and, you know, these are pretty old studies. I think they're important studies because they can show what can be, but how do we take that, these small studies and make them at a population level, continue to have that impact? Um, and how do we, you know, ensure that science scales effectively? And that's a whole different discussion, but, um, but yeah. You've also thought about uh, how to build a movement. And one of the lovely things about Parent Nation is it really does think big. Uh, you, uh, you talk about the development of the American Association for Retired People, the famous AARP, uh, and yeah. the way in which it was able to massively reduce elderly poverty. Uh, and contra you contrast that with the failure of the 1971 Comprehensive Child Development Act, which was vetoed by Richard Nixon under instruction by, from Pat Buchanan. Um, what can a movement to get more investment, more public investment in kids learn from the success of uh, the political mobilization of retirees to reduce elderly poverty? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I'm excited to share it. But I do, I do want to caveat it that that in some ways is a very U.S. focused, you know, sort of suggestion, because the truth is, is that we we don't invest in the early years and parents and at all, almost at all. I mean, you know, Australia, um, you all are really working it's it's very impressive and i'm not just saying this because i know you work in government uh <laughs> I, I i i came back from our our meeting and a you know in our visit to australia just as usual blown away so i love you guys um and what you're doing and i know that we we have the same potential in our in our country um it's just that you know i always say we have in we look, we've got the science of the importance of the early years. We've got the economic case. I mean, it makes so much sense financially. You know, every dollar invested, you know, you get $13 return. Uh, we've got the case for the business case, right? Women leaving the workforce is not good for our economy. What we don't have is the public or political will to push it forward. You know, 50 years ago, we tried, it didn't work. I thought it was gonna happen around the time of COVID because it was such a crystallizing moment, didn't happen. So I looked for sort of a bright spot of when another sort of underserved segment of our population really were able to come together and push forward change. And the ARP is an incredible example. And it's less a political movement than really, in some ways, a business for good. So just to, to contextualize it, back in the 60s and 50s, 
the poor segment of the population in the United States wasn't children. Today, children are the poor segment of the population. It is an abomination. But back then, it was the elderly. Some 50% lived below the minimum standards of decency. And the AARP in the gray lobby really changed all of that. Um, they, you know, decreased, you know, and, and and they were able to bring together all segments of the elderly population across race, ethnicity, religious, political divides. I mean, believe it or not, this is this is mind blowing. The AARP is one third Democrat, one third Republican, one third independent. I mean, no, you know what our country is like politically right now. It's just sort of like, whoa. But they advocated on behalf of what helps the entire elderly group. So they decreased the, you know, the poverty rate by 70%. And they, you know, in effect, you know, through Social Security and Medicare really, you know, help this group feel like a cohesive whole. And so as I was thinking about the thorny issue of the issues of children, which are really the issues of parents, I thought, well, why not something similar, right? A parent AARP, I actually wrote a, a small article in the Atlantic about it. Um, because, you know, they have huge purchasing power, right? And, you know, they have huge needs that are really the needs of, you know, the entire economy. I mean, it's in the best interest of business as well. So, you know, I sort of push this, you know, advance the idea of an ARP for parents and people seem interested, you know, these things, you know, take time and, you know, people seem to, whenever they hear this, they think of people sort of marching in the streets, but parents don't have the time, the bandwidth, they're exhausted. Um, but they do need people who are advocating on behalf of them and their children, so. You make a powerful case for it, uh, both uh, both here and of course in your uh, in your terrific book. Um, let me uh, wrap up, Dana, by asking you a couple of questions I ask each of my interviewees. Uh, <laughs> what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> Goodness, we could go in lots of different uh, areas. I think that, okay, I know where it is. My advice to my teenage self is this. Um, I'd say, you know what, remember when mom and dad said that they were going to yank you out of school in your sophomore year in high school and you kicked and screamed and you said, no, I don't want to travel around the world during your sabbatical, dad. I don't want to leave my friends, but you made me anyways. And that year became you know, one of the most transformational years in how I view the world. I think I'd go back and tell my teenage self, say, thank you, mom and dad, for giving me this incredible opportunity to see the world and see the incredible people, you know, that populate it and our commonality and the common goodness uh, of all humans. And uh, I guess, you know, they ended up, you know, not listening to my teenage self thankfully, but I think that's the biggest thing, not give them such a hard time for giving me a great gift. So the the kind of broader lesson from that is uh, for parents, presumably, is to put your kids into uncomfortable situations and uh, have them meeting new new people more often, right? Yeah, I think I think that every, I mean, you know, I was very privileged. We, I mean, although, you know, we, because my dad took a sabbatical and so went to medical schools around the world, but it was such an incredible thing to see how big and small our world is in the best of ways, so. What's something so, you used to believe? But... Listen to your parents, I guess, is uh, what it is. So, 
What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I used to think in some ways that everything happened for a reason. I don't know if you ever feel that way, like that, you know, it's sort of like not that there's a grand design, but like sometimes things are meant to be and everything happens for a reason. And uh, the truth is, is after the devastating loss of my late husband, uh, Don, who, um, you know, who who left me way too too young and too early and our children too early, I, I realized that everything doesn't happen for a reason. And, um, but, you know, but how we choose to sort of respond and adapt and grow from these experiences is important. So I guess that gives uh, some meaning, but yeah, everything doesn't happen for a reason, I suppose. The way in which you responded to your the, the loss of your first husband uh, when he died trying to save uh, uh, two kids in, in Lake Michigan, um, I've heard you say that you you lost a, lost your belief in serendipity, but gained a belief in in society. Uh, what 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 advice do you have for for others who've lost a spouse? Yeah, I. You know, thank you for remind, reminding me of that quote. It is so true. I think that the seeing that there's so much strength that you can get from your community and from the people around you. And um, that's really what I was able to do. And, you know, having a purpose. I, I was very lucky. I think both ensuring that my children got to adulthood, which is what I promised you know, my, my late husband, Don, as well as, you know, the purpose of my work is, you know, was really powerful in terms of healing and, you know, you never move on, but, you know, you move forward. So. Dana, when are you most happy? Um, I am most happy. It's so cliche, but when I'm surrounded by my children and my family and everybody is getting along. So I, you know, I, I lost my first husband and I always say he sent down my 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 second husband John uh who had five who has five children and I have three children so we're a melded family of eight and you know I guess I'm most happy when everybody is like around the table we're all together and everybody's getting along and there's just that you know that sense of love and I don't know you just I I call them it's your bottle it up moments where you just want to like keep those memories so that you can sort of open them up when life gets a little bit more challenging because because uh, we know that's just life but uh, that is when I have the most happiness and gratitude so that's beautiful what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy <laughs> uh well physically I can tell you um John and I love to bike. I know you're a big biker, so we're not cool like you in terms of biking, but we love to bike on the lakefront and just, you know, feel the wind in our hair and, you know, go downtown and get something to eat. And so that's that's our thing. Um, how do I stay mentally healthy? I mean, I in some ways you can sort of guess my answer because of how I responded to Don's death, but it's also how I respond in you know, in the chaos of this moment in time, um, the truth is, is that 
my work and my greater purpose to allow all children to thrive is, you know, hopefully a betterment for the world and giving children a chance and closing opportunity gaps. But, you know, purpose is, is something that helps guide you and, you know, gives you a sense of meaning and control and hope, really hope, right? Um, so that is how I stay mentally healthy. Most people will say, oh my gosh, that is such a lame answer, but I don't know, it, it does. So certainly rings true knowing you and your work. Uh, <laughs> and finally, Dana, uh, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think it's, I mean, again, it's going to feel so cliche, but, um, you know, it starts, you know, where, where you started off in our conversation, uh, my parents, um, you know, my mom is an incredibly, she's a writer and a dedicated social worker. And my dad is an incredible pediatrician and builder. And they've been, you know, really guiding lights, uh, you know, about the importance of, compassion in being actionable in trying to make the world a better place. And, and they're just, uh, you know, they're, they're guiding lights. So, and just so you know, as I mentioned, one is 83, one is 87. They are still traveling the world. I mean, they're right now in London. They were in Korea with us. They went to Dubai. So, you know, I guess, you know, adventure also can, <laughs> can, can help fuel fuel you. So, uh, but they are the reason. They are an important part of how I view the world. It's a perfect spot to close. So, Dana Suskind, a pediatric surgeon, writer, and researcher. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was great. Thank you very much. I will Thank stop you. our recording. Bye. Finally, we got it. <laughs> exactly. It's been so good. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.